Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to C4C Apologetics. I'm your host, Danny, and today I have another special guest. It's somebody that's uh, another heavy hitter within the Free Grace Theology camp and somebody that's come very highly recommended by many people. Most of you already know who this individual is. Number one, if you looked at the thumbnail, you looked at the title, or if you just see him right now on video, you know clear as day who this is. This is Dr. Andy Woods. And so, Dr. Woods, I appreciate you spending the time being with us today. Could you share a little bit? about yourself anything you'd like to share for those that may not know who you are okay well my name is dr andy woods and um, my most important thing is i'm married to a wonderful person <laughs> whose name is ann and we have a wonderful daughter named sarah um, after that i'm the pastor of a church sugarland bible church as you mentioned before i'm the president of a school um, uh, we, we have a, a location in Albuquerque, but we're mostly online now trying to uphold the dispensational and free grace perspective. And that school is called Chafer Theological Seminary, um, not to be confused with Francis Schaefer, but <laughs> Chafer, C-H-A-F-E-R. And then our website is .edu trying to get back to his philosophy of education um, in terms of training people in terms of the next, you know, generation that's going to fill the pulpit. So I guess those would be the highlights. Man, awesome. You mentioned a key word there that uh, much of this interview is going to be covering. And uh, so today we're going to be talking about end times eschatology and really understanding what's going to happen. A lot of people, especially even post COVID, uh, are still asking the question, what in the world's going on and what's going to happen in the future? And so, like I said, you mentioned a term that I really want to dig into first right off the bat is dispensationalism. And so could you explain what is the difference between dispensationalism and covenant theology? Uh, could you explain a little bit about that? Yeah, it, those terms are kind of confusing because mm -hmm. covenant theology that kind of sounds like dispensationalism because we're the ones in dispensationalism that emphasize the covenants. But anyway, the best of my understanding is the starting point of the two systems is different. Mm -hmm. uh, Charles Ryrie developed what's called the sine qua non of dispensationalism, which is a Latin expression, meaning without which there is not. In other words, if you took away one of these three elements Mm -hmm. you wouldn't have dispensationalism. And his first element is the consistent, which is a very important word, mm -hmm. consistent application of the literal, grammatical, historical, um, contextual method of interpretation. And we believe that once you apply that from Genesis to Revelation, you'll see in the biblical text the fact that God has two separate programs. Mm -hmm one for national Israel and one for the church. Mm -hmm. And Israel's program is basically uh, uh, developed through the biblical covenants. So we believe there's a foundational Abrahamic covenant. Mm -hmm. uh, later on in scripture, there's a land covenant, then there's a Davidic covenant, then there's a new covenant. And we get that because of the Hebrew word uh, berith, we don't just read covenants into the Bible, but each of these covenants, you know, as you read them, it, they clearly demonstrate that, that God has 
commitments to Israel that he hasn't fulfilled yet. Mm-hmm. And so that's, to the best of my knowledge, dispensationalism. Um, covenant theology, sometimes called reform theology, comes from a different angle entirely. It starts with something they call a covenant of grace. Mm. And their own guys will tell you, um, I've got a couple of quotes from them, mm-hmm. like in Charles Hodge and other places, that that covenant is not expressly mentioned in Scripture like our covenants are. Right. Um, so it's sort of something that is superimposed from the top down. You know, dispensationalism is starting from the bottom up. Mm. And because they're trying to find this, um, they're actually reading the Bible through a presuppositional a priori lens called the covenant of grace. Mm-hmm. They end up taking some parts of the Bible literally, some parts not literally. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't take the thousand years in Revelation 20 literally. They'll tell you that the Abrahamic covenant is heaven, you know, rather than literal literal land. And so they sort of end up um, soteriologizing some parts of the biblical text where dispensationalism is not doing that. And so I would call it more of a top to bottom approach um, where they're reading the Bible through a lens, through a theological covenant that they've basically, for lack of better expression, basically made up. Mm -hmm. And so those two systems are teaching two different things because their starting point is different. Dispensationalism is trying to build its theology from the text and covenant theology, the best I can tell has already developed its theology mm-hmm. and is approaching the biblical test through that text rather through that theological system. So, you know, where you end up in, in anything depends on where you, your starting point. And so the starting points of the two systems, the best I can tell are, are totally different. That's fascinating because it's sort of like fossils in the ground. You know, you got fossils in the ground. You have a creationist and you have a naturalist. They both have the same exact evidence in the ground, but you have to come and got it from different lenses or worldviews lenses. And so it's it's interesting because when you get the passages like Matthew chapter seven, verse number 20, where mm-hmm. Jesus says, by their fruits, you will know them. And so as a dispensationalist, I look at it from the aspect of, okay, this is prior to the cross. This is technically still under law. To me, what a prophet is in Matthew, I think it's 7, 14, 7 15, where it says, beware of false prophets. In that day, a prophet was, thus saith the Lord type person, John the Baptist, Mm -hmm. you have Elijah and people like that. And he's saying, beware of false prophets by their fruits, their message, uh, you will know them. And that's how I understand that verse. But when I'm dealing with the Lordship or Calvinist, they want to posit, no, he's talked about genuine believer and talk about works. How is it that covenant theologians allegorize so many scriptures passages and how are we so very much different as far as the interpretation there you know in other words you sort of alluded to it how the covenant theologian interprets scripture sometimes it's literal sometimes it's allegorical why do you how do they pick the difference between how they understand it and why is there such a difference between matthew 7 20 between mm-hmm. the dispensationalist and the covenant theologian yeah, I, I don't want to accuse covenant or reform theology, you know, of not taking the Bible literally, because mm-hmm. they do at places. If they didn't, 
you know, they'd be full fledged liberals, you know, yeah. denying denying uh, that Jesus was born in Bethlehem and rose from the dead, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, but the difference is when it comes to other matters like ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, eschatology, the doctrine of the end. I mean, it's very clear that they do the old switcheroo mm-hmm. and they don't approach the Bible with the same uh, method that they do in other places in those areas. And um, I, I think that's basically the principal difference. That's why literal interpretation, people that say I interpret the Bible literally, mm-hmm. that really doesn't impress me as much as people that use the word consistent, mm. consistent literalism. And as we're going to talk about in your questions that follow, you know, that takes into account figures of speech and things like that. Um, but Charles Ryrie was very clear. I think he was right on with this sine qua non when he says the starting point of the whole thing is not just literal, grammatical, historical, contextual method of interpretation, but consistent. In other words, I'm using the method in Genesis one through 11. I'm using the method. It's harder, but I can use it in Daniel and revelation and the reform camp basically doesn't believe that. And so that's why, you know, we don't really have a meeting of the minds on a lot of different issues in ecclesiology mm-hmm. and eschatology. Now, the, the Matthew 7, 20, 20 is just a case in point. I mean, what does it say there? Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, so then you will know them by their fruits. Mm-hmm. Now, as a, as a dispensationalist, I look at that and I say, I don't even know what that means. I, uh, the only way I could ever understand that is in context. Mm-hmm. And when I back up to verse 15, which comes before verse 20, (laughs) uh, so obviously I'm supposed to read verse 15 first. He says, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So I'm not going to look at that and say, well, that's some kind of test for the legitimacy of someone's profession of Christian faith, Mm -hmm. the way Calvinism will look at that verse because that's not in the context. And I also have at my fingertips um, cross references. Mm-hmm. And when I stay in the same book and slip over to Matthew 12, mm. and I look at verses, uh, verse 33, you see Jesus there using the same uh, imagery analogy. He says, either make the tree good and its Mm -hmm. fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit. Now, who's he speaking there to? Well, verse 24 comes before verse 33. (laughs) And in verse 24, he says, but when the Pharisees heard this, they said, you know, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons, verse 25. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them. So he's not, he's dealing with, unregenerate unsaved pharisees who are trying to kill him mm-hmm. you know at the time this was written and so i don't really have permission as a bible reader to read into this okay you know sister so and so you know missed uh choir practice last tuesday you know <laughs> maybe she's not really a christian mm-hmm. i mean i mean we could have the discussion about sister so and so but i can't use matthew 7 verse 20 to defend my view on that, you know, 
Jesus right. saying you'll know them by their fruits because that's not the context. He's saying this is how you recognize a false teacher. Mm-hmm. He's not dealing with people that, you know, claimed Christ but aren't yeah. showing enough up enough showing up with enough fruit. So that would be just an example of you know, two different approaches and how they're using the Bible. One is starting from the bottom up. Mm-hmm. One is starting from the top down. And, you know, even in, in forensics, like criminal investigation work, right. anybody that's good at their job will tell you that you try not to develop a theory on the case too early, who the bad guy is, because the human temptation is to fall in love with your theory yeah, and to try to make the data fit your theory rather than building your theory from the data. And people do this all of the time in Bible interpretation. They'll fall in love with Calvinism or mm-hmm. replacement theology or Lordship salvation. They'll just fall in love with it. Mm-hmm. And the temptation is to go to the Bible to make it fit their pre-existing system. Right. Whereas the dispensational approach is to build the system from the text upward, mm-hmm. not top down, if that helps at all. So it'd be a matter of really... Uh, their starting point and really inserting a theology into a text or the proof text fallacy. And it's a, is really a commitment and a resolve to uh, their presuppositions. Right. Is that, that's what it sounds like. Yeah. And I'm not saying I don't have presuppositions. Right. We all do. Yes. But, you know, I think God has designed his word in such a way with the with the clarity of the scripture we call that the perspicuity you know the general clarity of the scripture and the ministry of illumination of the spirit that all of us have the ability to come to the text and allow our presuppositions to be examined now i mean i i I graduated public school Mm -hmm. um and i got saved about sophomore year I was already a committed evolutionist Mm. before I got saved Mm -hmm. because they told me in the classroom that evolution was a fact. So Mm -hmm. I came to Genesis one and tried to make it fit evolution. (laughs) Well, you know, the more you get into that, Ken Ham actually was instrumental. And before, even before he was at answers in Genesis, he was with uh, ICR at the time. I went and heard him speak at, Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, mm-hmm. um, probably, I don't know, 1984, 1985, oh, wow. 1986, right in that time period. And he basically showed you that, look, you can't believe both. You're either going to be an evolutionist or a creationist because mm-hmm. the biblical account is teaching something different. So there's an example where my existing presupposition had to be altered mm-hmm. by the naked data of the Bible. And I think we all have to have that mindset you know, to hold on our, to our presuppositions loosely yeah. and let them be re- re- refined or, in, in my case, dismantled um, mm-hmm. when the biblical text is teaching something different. No, you're totally right, because even when the naturalists it, say a Christian does believe in evolution, there's no way you can match up the evolutionary sequence of events with Genesis 1 sequence of events. They're totally, really out of order. Now, this wasn't in any of the questions but i i figured i'd ask it because it really pops up something that i've considered before too is with scripture being the special revelation of god it seems to me that there are so many people out there that 
believe, okay, yes, this is special revelation, divine revelation of God. So I have to have some sort of special hermeneutic or special method of interpreting it rather than looking at it as any other body of literature, whether it's poetry, whether it's historical or epistle, whatever the case is. Why do you believe people come to scripture thinking it's, I understand it's, don't get me wrong, it is definitely higher than any other body of literature. But why do they believe we can't use the same hermeneutic principle as we do any other regular body of literature? And I don't want to say everybody does that, but it does seem like some people hold to this Gnostic view of of not reading it like anything else. Do you have any thoughts on that or experienced? Um, I'm not sure what the motive is in people. Yeah. Um, it might be related to the fact that the bible says some pretty severe things mm -hmm. that most people you know aren't willing to accept mm -hmm. you know that might be a motive but the truth of the matter is god chose to record uh via inspiration his word in linguistic form mm -hmm. he decided to use language and when he put it in linguistic form then the ordinary rules of language that govern interpretation of any other document mm -hmm. are are applicable, which would be, you know, morphology, syntax, mm -hmm. you know, sentence structure, context. Um, and so I don't really have permission to go come to the Bible and make it a case of special pleading, you know, where all of a sudden those rules don't apply. Right. By the way, people do this with the U.S. Constitution all mm, the time. That's true. But but they don't do it in contract law. Contract law, they take it literally, literal, mm. grammatical, historical. Constitutional law, they use a different hermeneutic because a lot of them are big government, you know, Marxist, socialist types, and they don't like the Constitution's limited government that it presents and so they yeah. they apply one set of rules to contract law another set of rules, rules to yes. uh, uh, constitutional law and then people do the same thing with the bible they i mean i would never when i'm listening mm -hmm. to you talk to me i'm applying a hermeneutic or we couldn't communicate mm -hmm. um i'm not free to dispense with that when i come to the bible just because it's from god right. in fact i should probably be more eager if, it, if i believe it comes from god because I'm not here to correct God. <laughs> God's here yeah. to correct me. I think your analogy with the constitutional law and how so many people want to change what the Constitution originally meant and apply that principle to our day today. And and because they want to have all these agendas and these leftist, uh, uh, you know, ideologies, they're trying to force fit their, pre well, really their philosophy into the Constitution. And that's where we're getting so many of these unconstitutional uh laws that are being passed and executive orders and, and everything of the of the like and it really makes me think of there i forget what denomination this pastor was but mr b on red pen logic has a lot of videos on things he says but like he uses when lazarus was in the tomb and jesus came on the fourth day to resurrect him he used lazarus coming out of the tomb and when jesus called him to come out 
he used that as an LGBT uh, figure of speech that Jesus was telling, you know, you to come out in who you are and, and be free to be uh, LGBT, if you will, and totally, like you're saying, superimposing their philosophy into scripture, which scripture was never meant to say as far as that passage is concerned. And so I love your analogy of the constitutional law versus the contractual law, because, yeah, there's a big difference. And I think that paints the picture very clearly. Mm -hmm. uh, I was introduced to this thought uh, a couple years back by a buddy of mine uh, named Russ, and it's really in interpreting the book of Revelation. And uh, first, before I get into it, what, what do you believe? Okay, when we're looking at it historically, literally, and grammatically, we can understand the grammatical aspect. We can understand the historical aspect. But Revelation, there's a lot of symbolism. What do you believe is the best best method to interpret the book of Revelation uh, as far as understanding it and interpreting it from the historical, literal, grammatical method? Well, I'm going to argue that the same hermeneutic you would use anywhere else, you would mm -hmm. use in Revelation. It's just in Revelation, it's more difficult mm -hmm. because there is more symbolism. But there is a way to understand what is symbolic and what is literal. In other words, what is denotative, literal, and what is intended connotative, and which is more figurative. And the way you tell is you look for textual clues. Mm -hmm. um, I do this anywhere in the Bible, by the way. I mean, when it says at the end of John's Gospel, where John says, you know, I suppose if I told you everything Jesus said or did, it would fill the whole earth with <laughs> books. I mean, that's obviously not denotative. That's connotative because he's using a well-known figure of speech called a hyperbole. Mm -hmm. Because if I interpreted it denotatively, it would be ridiculous what he's saying. You know, I'm so hungry I could eat a horse. Um, you know, we use that kind of... Uh, you know, language all of the time. And we understand as inherently linguistic speaking beings, what is literal and what is figurative. So mm -hmm. Revelation, you do the same thing. It's just, it's more difficult, but there are textual clues. Uh, so, so for example, it will say things like, like, or as mm. John says something like a giant mountain of flame fell into the sea. Um, so I would understand that as a simile. Mm -hmm. Revelation 12, verse 1, John says, I saw a sign in heaven, Simeon in Greek. So the characters, there's three characters there. I would understand them figuratively. Mm -hmm. um, Revelation 11, verse 8 of Jerusalem, it says in the last days she will be spiritually, there's an adverb, mm. spiritually like Sodom and Egypt. So there's a, a clue. Um, Revelation 17, verse 8. 18 in Babylon mm -hmm. gives me a clue at the end of the chapter when it says the woman or the harlot mm -hmm. that you saw is a city. Mm -hmm. So I don't interpret the harlot literally because the end of the chapter tells me that the harlot represents a city. Mm -hmm. And then I would look for absurdity. You know, when the woman mm -hmm. in Revelation 12 verse 1 is clothed with the sun Mm -hmm. And the moon and the 12 stars, I mean, she couldn't literally be clothed with the sun or she'd burn up. So, uh, and see, what I'm doing is I'm using this method, looking for clues within the text, telling me what's literal and what's not. I do that in Romans and everywhere else. 
just in Revelation, it's harder. Mm-hmm. And then once I hit a symbol, there's some ways in Revelation to understand the symbol. Um, most of the time, the symbol will be interpreted by the same passage later on in the chapter. That happens over and over again in Revelation. Mm-hmm. So, for example, the serpent in uh, Revelation 12, verse 3, is obviously Satan. Mm-hmm. because the verse 9 tells me that Satan is the serpent, as mm-hmm. does Revelation 20, verse 2. If that doesn't work, I've got the Old Testament to help me. Mm-hmm. 278 of Revelation's 404 verses um, make a reference to the Old Testament somewhere. And if something is fuzzy to me, maybe it means I don't know my Old Testament as well as mm-hmm. I thought because the uh, woman is clothed with the sun and the moon and the 12 stars. You go back to Genesis 37, nine and 10. That's a dead on ringer for Joseph's mm-hmm. dream concerning Israel. Mm-hmm. And then I also look for similes because in revelation one, verse 19, God told John to write and he's struggling to, to fulfill that because John, I think is being shown phenomenon that could be fulfilled in the 21st century or beyond. And John is just a first century man on the Island of Patmos with first century knowledge. And he's struggling to try to describe what he saw. So he keeps saying like, or as it would be like taking uh, Thomas Jefferson and putting him into hobby international airport. And he sees someone, you know, uh, talking on their cell phone. Or he sees an aircraft, you know, land or take off, or he hears something mm-hmm. on the loudspeaker. How could he describe it to fulfill the command to write? He, he would say it's like, or as he would analogize it to something in his own time frame that he could analogize it to, because he does as smart as Thomas Jefferson was. Mm-hmm. He's arguably one of the smartest people that have ever lived when mm-hmm. you get into Thomas Jefferson's life and writings and so forth. He just just did not have the education to describe 21st century reality. So he would say like or as, well, John is doing the same thing. So I guess my point is, you know, hermeneutically with Revelation, there's ways to figure out what's denotative and what's connotative. Mm -hmm. And once you hit connotative, there's a way to figure out what connotative language stands for. There's a referent behind it. And so it's, it's harder but it's the same method I'm using anywhere else in scripture. No, that's fascinating. That's now I love how you drew out the whole, you know, context clues with similes and, and looking back at the old Testament and just allowing scripture to interpret itself, especially like in the book of Daniel, when you get to the visions of these coming empires and, and you get the, the aspect of, you know, who these things are. I mean, if you just let mm-hmm. it interpret itself, you know, a statue, the image of Nebuchadnezzar in his dream, uh, it clearly defines it. And so I really love that insight. So as I alluded to before in that last question, a buddy of mine named Russ had really brought me into this thought, uh, if you will. Uh, as we're looking at the book of Revelation, he was bringing up the fact that it's possible that as opposed to being written chronologically, Revelation appears that may have been written thematically. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? And how could we know whether it's chronological or thematical? Well, I do believe it's chronological because numbers are given 
in the futuristic section of the book, you know, first bowl, second bowl, third bowl, first seal, second seal, third seal, first trumpet, second trumpet, third trumpet. I mean, it lends right. itself chronologically. And as you kind of interpose those judgments, they have to be, they can't be all the same because one says a third of the sea turned to blood. Right. Later, it says all of the sea turned to blood. I mean, that it's either a third or all it can't be happening simultaneously. Right. So, a, so a cron, I mean, I would never do that in Exodus where it says first plague, second plague, third plague. I mean, anybody would take that at face value. And I'm right. not, I'm not totally sure why people think they can do that in Revelation. However, having said that, I believe that there are five times in the book where the chronology stops mm -hmm. to add more detail mm. about ha something happening in the, the sequence. Uh, the best analogy I've heard for this is a lunch break <laughs> as you're hiking, you know, you're hiking up a path mm -hmm. and then you want to stop somewhere scenic for lunch and your scenic view allows you to look back to where you've come from. Mm -hmm. and forward to where you're going but once lunch is over you get back on the path oh, and you yeah. keep marching that's basically what's happening in the book of revelation but i think there are i call them non-chronological parenthetical insertions mm -hmm. that happens five times in revelation it's very similar to genesis 1 and genesis 2 mm -hmm. genesis 1 is the creation week genesis 2 is not Genesis right. 2 is a greater amplification of day 6. And if you don't keep the two straight, you'll be confused. Mm -hmm. The book of Revelation is doing the same thing. It's moving chronologically. But in between seal judgment 6 and 7 is a lunch break. Mm -hmm. The advent of the 144,000, because it's answering the question at the end of chapter 6, who can stand? Oh, in between uh, trumpet six and trumpet seven is a lunch break, Revelation 10, one through 11, 13. Hmm. Speaking of a lot of different things, including the two witnesses. After the seventh trumpet is the lunch break, Revelation 12 through 14. In between the sixth and seventh bowl is a lunch break. Revelation 16, 13 through 16, the gathering of the nations to Armageddon under satanic power. And then after the seventh bowl is a lunch break regarding Babylon's destruction, because the seventh bowl ends with the destruction of the two great cities, the city of Jerusalem and the city of Babylon. And the readers might be interested in Babylon past, present and future and exactly mm. how. She's going to be taken out. And so you have a lunch. In fact, the bowl, the angel that was showing John the bowl judgments, mm -hmm. the same angel says, let me show you Babylon. Yeah. So the angel is, is intentionally putting a pause on the chronology. And that's the last lunch break. It goes from chapter 17, verse one to chapter 19, verse six. After the lunch breaks over, you get right back on the path and you have the second coming the millennial kingdom the great white throne judgment and the eternal state and so i do other than what i've said i do believe it's chronological with those five insertions and that's what makes revelation so valuable because it allows you to take 
scattered and splintered prophecies found throughout the Bible, like in Joel and Isaiah and countless other places. Mm -hmm. And it allows you to align them or put them into a chronological framework. So when people just, just disregard the chronology of Revelation, I think they're missing the point of the book. Mm-hmm. That's one of the reasons God gave the book is to take the data that's scattered throughout Scripture prophetically and put them into a chronological framework. So I hope that helps. No, that definitely does because uh, there did seem to be a little bit of convincing arguments as far as the thematic, but when you are explaining the aspect of uh I love your analogy of the lunch breaks, you know, I like that picture and the parenthetical statements. Cause we can see that mm-hmm. all throughout scripture that there's parenthetical statements as well, but then looking at, okay, if revelation is chronological or sequential, uh, maybe the passages in the old Testament are just really small snapshots that we're yeah. trying to fit together in mm-hmm. this progressive revelation. So I have to ask this question about who you believe the Antichrist is, uh, whether he's of Muslim, whether he's of European, uh, whether he's Jewish. I did hear you say, and I love it, I was like, you know that Bill Clinton's not the Antichrist, because in (laughs) Daniel chapter 11, he says, neither shall he regard the desire of women. And so I I love that. That's kind of comical, but... Uh, what ethnicity do you believe the Antichrist is coming from? There's some people under the persuasion that he's Muslim, uh, some under European, uh, old revive, you know, uh, empire. What are your thoughts and, and why do you believe that? Yeah, uh, before that, that's a great question. Before that, let me give you one more analogy about Revelation, if I could. Yeah. Um, I would analogize the Old Testament to a jigsaw puzzle of scattered pieces mm-hmm. you, you have no idea how they fit together till you look at the box top mm. and you see what it, the picture the mosaic it's supposed to produce mm-hmm. so revelation is the box top oh, showing you good. what the picture is supposed to look like the old testament and new te- some new testament for that matter is the scattered pieces so you know maybe that helps a little bit but definitely concerning antichrist you know i don't contrary to a lot of popular teaching i it's just hard for me to believe that the antichrist will be muslim because it says in second thessalonians 2 verses 3 and 4 that he will demand worship above all that is called god and it's very difficult for me to think a devout muslim would ever put himself above allah mm-hmm. i I, there's no doubt in my mind that Islam is a key factor in the end time scenario, mm-hmm. mostly from the nations in Ezekiel 38 and 39. I wrote a little book on that called The Middle East Meltdown, mm-hmm. but I don't really hold to a, um Islamic Antichrist interpretation. I don't think the Antichrist could be Jewish either because he comes out of the sea, Revelation 13, verse 1. Mm-hmm. which very well could be, according to Revelation 17, verse 15, one of those figures of speech mm-hmm. describing the mass of humanity, you know, nations, multitudes, tongues, ethnicities, etc. Mm-hmm. I think if you're going to anchor something down as being Jewish, you're, you're better in thinking that the false prophet, the second beast, could be Jewish. Mm-hmm. Because he comes out of the land, which is a little two-letter Greek word, um, 
GE really, um, where we get the word geology, geography, which is used over and over again to describe the land of Israel, hmm. you know, throughout throughout Scripture, uh, Matthew two, you know, a lot of other other places. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think the Antichrist could be Jewish because the the two guys in Daniel that are held out as types of the Antichrist or mm-hmm. prefigurements of the Antichrist. Antiochus Epiphanes, Daniel eleven thirty one, and Titus of Rome, Daniel nine twenty six. Both of those guys were Gentiles Mm -hmm. and not Jewish. And the Antichrist thrives at the end of the times of the Gentiles, Mm -hmm. at the end of Daniel's fourth beast, which is the end of the times of the Gentiles, where the Gentiles have superiority over the Jewish nation. And so the Antichrist is that little horn, Daniel 7, that comes up at the end of the times of the Gentiles. So it makes sense to me that he would be Gentile rather than Jewish. Mm-hmm. So I'm not a Muslim Antichrist guy, a Jewish Antichrist guy. The best I can do is he's probably going to be Romish mm-hmm. or European. He's going to see, He seems to arise out of some kind of Eurocentric uh, regional empire which will become a global empire or part of a global empire. And I get that from Daniel 9.26, where it talks about Titus of Rome prophetically sacking the temple Mm -hmm. of Israel in AD 70. And then Daniel 9.27 is the the he. Mm -hmm. He will confirm a covenant with many, which we understand as the future Antichrist. And so the law of the nearest antecedent of, of the pronoun he mm-hmm. takes you back to Titus of Rome. And so that would be my best guess that the Antichrist will sort of arise out of the cultural inheritance of, of ancient Rome. Um, but I, I don't think he'll be uh, Jewish uh, or Hebrew, nor, the, nor do I think he'll be uh, Islamic. Yeah. I had a I had a fascinating fascinating thought regarding the Antichrist and the fact that Scripture prophesies his coming. Scripture prophesies his rising. I would argue that Scripture says he has to be an adult in order to make this covenant and have this peace treaty and to gain a following. And so that leads me to believe that he has to be divinely protected, so he's not killed early as like an adolescent through an accident or whatever, or through war. So it was just an interesting thought that I was having that it seems like according to prophecy to be fulfilled, he has to be protected until a certain period of time. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know if anybody has ever thought about that, but it was like one day I just had this thought. I was like, cause otherwise if, if Satan killed the antichrist, that would mean then, uh, the prophecy wouldn't be fulfilled if mm-hmm. you will mm-hmm. but uh apostasy uh apostasy could you explain what apostasy is and then the meaning of second thessalonians chapter 2 verse number 3 where it says that uh there has to be a fallen of a way that happens mm-hmm. could mm-hmm. you explain a little bit about those two aspects well the noun um apostasia you know, is only used twice in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically what it means is departure. And when you study the verb, mm-hmm. uh, aphistomy, 
it could mean physical departure coming from the same root. You know, Paul pleaded that the thorn in the flesh would depart from him. He mm. wanted it physically removed. Or as in Hebrews um, 3.13, I think it is 1 Timothy 4.1, you know, it could mean a doctrinal defection. But the word itself just means to depart. Mm-hmm. And whether it's talking about something physical or something doctrinal, mm-hmm. you have to look at the context. So I don't really understand the word apostasy as something technical, meaning it's the same meaning everywhere it's used. Right. Now, the English, English word apostasy is technical. To my understanding, every time it's used, is it means a doctrinal defection. And unfortunately, people take that mindset concerning mm-hmm. apostasy in English, and they think that's what it means in Greek, but mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that. It's, it's a compound word coming from two words, making one word, apos, meaning preposition away from, mm-hmm. and histomy, to stand. It literally means to stand away from, or it means to move away from something. Now, is it talking about something doctrinal, or is it talking about something physical? I would have no idea unless I read the word contextually. It's like the word apple in English. Is it talking about fruit, a computer, New mm-hmm. York, the pupil of one's eye? Right. Um, what is it talking about? Well, I couldn't know that unless I would look at the word in its context, how it's being used. And so that's really the battle with Second Thessalonians 2 verse 3 is people are assuming that apostasy always means doctrinal and they read that write that in they read that right into second Thessalonians 2 3 mm. but the problem is second Thessalonians and first Thessalonians are Paul very early in his ministry before he started warning about the last days apostasy of the church mm-hmm. as he does in first Timothy second Timothy as Peter starts to do in Second mm-hmm. Peter, this is different. This is Paul early in his ministry. This Second Thessalonians would only be his third book that he's mm-hmm. written. Okay, and his focus is not on the last days apostasy of the church. Other books it is, but not this one. Right, and it's it's mm-hmm. quite obvious what he's focused on here. He's focused on the return of Christ. First Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians are written. Uh, within six months to a year of each other. Hmm. And every chapter in First Thessalonians ends with a reference to the return of Christ. Hmm. Paul is dealing with the return of Christ in both books. And it becomes obvious when you look at verse 1, where it says concerning our gathering together. Hmm. You know, that's the rapture. And then verse 2 of Second Thessalonians 2, is the forged letter that the Thessalonians had received in Paul's absence, arguing that the tribulation period oh. or the day of the Lord has started. Right. And so what Paul starts to do beginning in verse three is he says, you're not in the tribulation period <laughs> because you haven't departed yet. And he uses the noun apostasia with mm-hmm. the definite article, by the way, he's talking about the departure mm. and you know, I have a little booklet on this where I give 10 reasons, you know, why I think the context there argues for a 
physical departure, but I'm just kind of summarizing here my conclusions. Yeah, right. And it just comes from, you know, and people, I don't know what it is about this. They get really upset. You know, they mm. produce full length videos, you know, calling me a heretic. And the truth of the matter is I heard the first time I heard this was from J. Dwight Pentecost yeah. at Dallas Seminary. I mean, this is not my view. Right. You know, Tommy Ice of the Preacher Research Center holds the view. I just took it and maybe defended it a little differently. Mm-hmm. But it, it's not heretical. It's contextual. Mm. Now, I know, I know why they're mad. They're mad because a lot of them are not pre-tribulational. Mm, okay. And if I'm right on this, then the departure comes first. Mm-hmm. Pre-trib. You can't be mad or three quarters or right. post that's why they're upset but apostasia is non-technical mm-hmm. it means departure it could mean physical or it could mean doctrinal mm-hmm. clearly the issue is what view of departure fits this context mm-hmm. which is how you interpret apple right. or any other word that has multiple meanings and the error people are making is they think apostasia always means the same thing. Like it's a technical word. It always means doctrinal defection. And I'm of the view that it does not mean that. Right. It could be physical or spiritual, depending on the context. So that that's kind of a summary of the second Thess 2-3 controversy. No, it definitely makes sense. And it goes back to, like you said, originally with dispensational hermeneutic is taking the literal grammatical historical context uh, in play to see, okay, what was Paul writing at the time and who was he writing to and why was he writing it? And so, no, I think if anything, that's uh, a lot more exegetical than a lot of times theology being inserted into scripture. Mm -hmm. And so you had mentioned the fact on pre-tribulational rapture uh and i want to bring up the doctrine of imminence and so this is a teaching that as a pre-tribulationist myself i would believe in the doctrine of imminence uh, not as probably a lot of people uh, would believe it to be from what i understand imminence doesn't necessarily mean uh to happen quickly per se but that there's nothing needed to be accomplished before it actually happens and so could you explain what is the doctrine of imminence and uh, how could we see it from a rapture perspective? And is this a new view or is this in church antiquity view as well? Yeah, I think you define eminence correctly, you know, basically concerning the rapture. Mm-hmm. It's the idea that no prophetic sign has to take place or elapse before the rapture can occur. Mm-hmm. And why do we believe that? Because when the rapture is described in the New Testament, never is a some kind of sign going to precede it. Right. And and I think the doctrine of eminence kicked in beginning in John fourteen two and three, mm-hmm. where Christ, after he's making a statement that would be fulfilled after his ascension, mm-hmm. in the upper room, the ascension was coming. But he's saying, you know, I'm in my father's house or many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, behold, I go and prepare a place for you. I will come again to receive you unto myself that where I am, you know, you may be also. And he doesn't say I'm coming to get you. But first, there's going to be an antichrist and a temple and the seal judgments. 
He doesn't say anything like that. He says, I'm coming for you, and he gives no sign. Mm-hmm. Um, you see the same thing in James 5, 8, 9, where it says, behold, the Lord is standing at the door. Philippians 3, verse 20, you know, to wait for his, we are eagerly awaiting his son from heaven. Mm-hmm. Uh, other verses, Titus 2, 13, we're looking for the blessed hope. Uh, I could throw in there 1 Corinthians 1, verse 7. We could toss in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 22, where Paul says, Maranatha, which literally means our Lord come. Mm-hmm. And in all of these verses, there were, I mean, people want to put some sign first. Right. Uh, some people are arguing for this intra-seal rapture. Mm. Um, show, me, show me any reference to the rapture where he names a sign first. Right. So that's essentially where the doctrine comes from. Is it old? It's as old as the New Testament. <laughs> um, yeah. James is the earliest New Testament book. James mentions it. Now, J. Dwight Pentecost in his book, Things to Come, documents how the early church believed in eminency in the second epistle of Clement. Okay. AD 95 to 140 in the Didache. Mm-hmm. A.D. 120 in the Epistle of Barnabas, A.D. 70 to 135. You can get into the writings of Wayne Brindle, who you may have had as a professor since you're, you know, Liberty. Liberty, He was a former professor at Liberty. He has a wonderful article or set of articles in Bibliotheca Sacra talking Mm -hmm. about this. Uh, Larry Crutchfield. There's just a lot of scholars that have looked into this and, and said there's a lot of early church documents that mm-hmm. believed in eminency. But, you know, to me, that's sort of irrelevant because it's right. in the Bible. Mm-hmm. And that's where it comes from. And that's my best understanding of eminency. Yeah. And the reason why I mentioned like early church fathers or church history is because, again, when we're when we're dealing with people that superimpose theology onto scripture, uh, they they tend to not see it the same way that maybe a dispensationalist would as far as contextually and marrying it up with Old Testament prophecies and things like that. And it always amazes me as far as the aspect of, you know, people say like pre-tribulational view was created a couple hundred years ago and it's not found in the Bible. And so they always point out, oh, no one in church history has ever held this view. But I believe that a lot of times they're either ignorant in the fact that they just are uneducated and they just don't know, or they're regurgitating information. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so one of my heart desire is to be able to reach some of the covenant theologians and understand how they're interpreting and understanding scripture in their viewpoint. And how can I be used to help clarify some misunderstandings they have? And so one of the arguments is church history. And well, we, like you said, first, second century church, they're even writing about eminence as well. And so this isn't mm-hmm. anything, uh, John Nelson Darby hasn't established everything, you know, in recent years. So, but uh, I appreciate that. Uh, general question. Mm-hmm. Everybody wants to ask this question. Uh, when is Jesus Christ going to return? If you could like summarize, when is Jesus going to return? Maybe in like, two minutes or just a quick summary when is he going to come well you know when you get into something like that obviously i can't give a date because the scripture gives no date but 
my understanding of the Bible is his coming is divided into two phases. Okay. And you reach that because the coming of Christ is described differently uh, many times in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. You know, people have put together charts showing 50 to 100 differences. You know, for example, in Revelation 19, he's coming back and he's going to commit violence. Right. And it won't be a blessing to most of the world's inhabitants. And yet mm. in the rapture, it's a, it's a blessing. And we could go through difference after difference after difference. So, right. you know, if you care, if details mean something to you and you can, and you care about literal interpretation, then you start to see that the coming of Christ has two phases, just like in the old Testament, mm. a discerning person could see that Jesus comes twice. He's coming to suffer Isaiah 53 and he's coming to rule and reign. <laughs> Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. How do you put those together unless you see two different phases? So we believe he's coming first in the rapture, pre-seven-year tribulation, mm-hmm. pre-70th week. His feet will not touch the earth. Those alive on the earth will be caught up. And he almost makes a U-turn and goes right back into heaven <laughs> with those that are on the earth at the time to meet the deceased loved ones in the air. And then he's coming a second time, you know, to planet earth to actually touch down Zechariah 14, four, his feet will touch the Mount of Olives. He will bring in violent judgment and he will establish his, you know, thousand year kingdom. So that as far as, you know, when that happens, that's the best I can do. Mm-hmm. I do believe that there are signs for the second advent. Mm-hmm. not the rapture so there's a lot of there's a lot of stage setting going on in our world today for the second advent because the tribulation period precedes the second advent mm-hmm. like the rebirth of the nation of israel in unbelief mm-hmm. like the trend towards world government like some kind of um mark of the beast te- technological system Right. If, if indeed it's talking about technology. And so I can see the world being set up for the second advent very clearly. Mm-hmm. And since the rapture of the church precedes the second advent, I say, wow, if the second advent is coming this fast, then the rapture of the church is coming even faster. It's like this time of the year. Once we hit November, we're going to start hearing Christmas songs <laughs> on the radio and we're going to see Santa Claus in the department store. Yeah. And we say to ourselves, well, the signs of Christmas indicate that Thanksgiving is coming even faster because mm. Thanksgiving occurs earlier on the calendar than Christmas. Mm-hmm. And that's, um, that's my best attempt at the wind question. Yeah. Thanks to my daughter. We've had Christmas songs for the last month. <laughs> <laughs> She's definitely yeah. a Christmas person, but uh, yeah, no, I, I liken it also, you had mentioned it before, like you have all these old jigsaw puzzles, you know, and so a little bit talks about this sign has to happen. This sign has to happen for the second coming and and the return of Christ on Revelation 19. And then we can see. So it would be my understanding that if there's an atheist who knows, I mean, there's a lot of atheists that know scripture, right? Sure. And so I would imagine that unless they're given a strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that the rapture happens okay they may not know it might be you know argued uh, aliens abducted everybody right whatever the case is 
But once this peace treaty signed and the clock begins, and even like halfway through the peace treaty, I would think anybody that understands or reads this book, I mean, there would be telltale signs for them as an unbeliever be like, oh, maybe this is accurate. And so I love how you pointed out the different signs and the distinction between the two aspects of the rapture mm. and the second coming and that the pre-tribulational view has really got to be the only one that biblically can be really stood upon uh, because of the doctrine of imminence. Uh, one question, I um, mean, my daughter, we would do farewell Fridays where we look at end time stuff and scripture and talk about things. And one of the questions we've regularly talked about are the locusts. The locusts mm -hmm. in Revelation chapter 9, uh, verse number 3. Uh, and, you know, scripture says there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth. And it has given them power and scorpions on the earth to have power. And, and it, it reads the fact that in verses later, they'll give the power to sting people. People will want to die, but they won't be able to die and, and things like what are these locusts? I know you talked about John before uh, saying he's writing about things that he probably has never seen. So he's doing his best to probably try to articulate what he's seeing. And so what are your thoughts on Revelation 9-3? What are the locusts and what's happening here? Well, let me first explain what they're not. They're okay. not Cobra helicopters. Oh, okay. and, and the reason I bring that up is... Mm -hmm what people do to disparage dispensationalism is they find a popular dispensationalist saying that, mm. and then they try to build a straw man argument. It's an Aaron logic called straw man. And they mm -hmm. try to say all oh, dispensationalists believe that their attack Cobra helicopters. Look how, you know, these guys read the current events into the Bible. You can't trust them. So they, they've got, because some of our guys, unfortunately, have said they're <laughs> Cobra helicopters. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They've, given, they've given fodder to the, the enemy. Yeah, that's a hasty that, generalization that fallacy, sure. too. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, but what you'll notice is we mentioned similes before. Right. Uh, Dr. Roy Zook, in his book, mm -hmm. Basics of Bible Interpretation, points out that the words like or as mm -hmm. is used more times in a concentrated way describing this fifth trumpet judgment than any other place in the bible oh wow so this is obviously a simile in other words it's like thomas jefferson in hobby international airport being shown something being told to write what he sees and he's struggling mm -hmm. he's saying it's like it's like it's like or it's as it's as it's as um, now, having said all that, when you look at verse, uh, let's see, I believe it's verse three. No, verse one it says they come out of the bottomless pit. Mm -hmm. In Greek, that's the word abuso, where we get the word abyss. Mm -hmm. And when you cross reference over to Revelation 20, verse one, mm -hmm. the abyss is where Satan is, is incarcerated. Mm-hmm. For a thousand years during the millennial kingdom satan being a fallen angel so my understanding of the abyss is it's some kind of temporary holding tank mm -hmm. uh, for fallen angels and apparently in fifth, fifth uh, the fifth trumpet judgment they're let out and they begin to torment people for five months with stinging power like a scorpion mm. to the point where people seek death and can't find it 
Now, where did these demons come from? How did they get into the abyss? There may be an answer in Genesis 6, mm. 1 through 4. Yeah, where the sons of God, to prevent the birth of Messiah, began to procreate with human women to sort of genetically interfere with the human race mm -hmm. so that the Messiah, who must be fully man, must be from the seed of the woman, can right. never be born. And God, you know, according to... Um, three references mm -hmm. uh 1 peter 3 19 and 20 2 peter 2 4 and 5 and yeah. jude verses 6 and 7 because these entities these demons some of them not all but some of them left their natural abode and got mm -hmm. involved in this sin god immediately jailed them yeah and the products of their unholy union are called the nephilim mm -hmm. fallen ones which was so severe that God put an end to it, you know, through the global flood, the Nephilim were purged from the earth. Mm -hmm. And so these demons involved in this sin were incarcerated. So, you know, there's an argument to be made that that's the group that comes out of this um, mm. abyss in fifth, in the fifth trumpet judgment. Now, you know, do I know this with 100% for sure? No, right. but you know, when you, when you try to, come up with a view on something in the bible that's debated you come up with the one that you think has the least problems oh, every view has problems and so this is the view that i hold on who these these locusts are sort of similar to occam's razor or yes. the simplest answer type deal uh no i like that because yeah i was when you had made mention of the abyss being sort of like a holding cell it automatically led me to look at the letters of peter when I think the Greek word for uh, the demons that left not their that left their first habitat estate are left in everlasting change reserved unto the day of judgment. And from what I understand, the Greek word for, or I think the hell that's used in that reference is Tartaros, which mm -hmm. I believe was the only time it's used. And then going back to Gen Genesis six with the Nephilim, I think, yeah, I mean, that's fascinating insight as far as this abyss that they're coming out, that mm -hmm. these are reserved, and then they'll be coming up. Because in letter P Peter's letter, it says that they are imprisoned right mm -hmm. now. Yeah. We know that's not the case for all the demons, right? but there's a certain group. And so I think that really provides a bit of clarity for me as far as them coming out of the pit, who it is. And I, I think, yeah, I think I would now hold the view that these are probably possibly them of Genesis 6 or in that particular area mm -hmm. and so that's fascinating i appreciate that uh going to uh the two witnesses of revelation 11 and zechariah chapter number four mm -hmm. the two witnesses that uh, revelation 11 talks about they'll come on the earth they'll have be able to kill people with fire out of their mouth they'll end up getting killed and their bodies laying in the street for three days and then they'll be resurrected and, and taken up to heaven there's a debate as far as whether they're Moses and Elijah because of Mount Transfiguration, or if it's Moses and Enoch because uh, whatever the case is, or if it's Elijah and Enoch because they were both translated. Uh, what are your thoughts? I know we are not going to know here now, but what are your thoughts? Who, who possibly are these two witnesses, or is it somebody else? Well, I don't, I don't think one of them is Enoch. Okay. And... That the Enoch view has been strongly held throughout church history. Mm -hmm. And sort of the logic of it is, you know, you can't die twice. Mm. And he was taken to heaven. 
but you actually you can die twice because remember uh, Lazarus was brought out of the grave That's true, and yeah. presum- presumably he died again. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm not a fan of the Enoch view because Enoch was a Gentile. He, was, he wasn't Jewish. Oh. Uh, the Jewish race hadn't started yet. And it seems to me God's hand is back on Israel. That's a good point. Uh, yeah. In the tribulation period, Jeremiah 30, verse seven, Daniel nine, verse 24. Um there are some people like my classmate, Christine Tan, mm-hmm. who wrote some Bibsack articles on this as part of her doctoral dissertation, thinks that they're not Moses and Elijah, but they're going to be like Moses and Elijah. Mm-hmm. I think Dr. Pentecost, you know, held that view. Mm-hmm. I, I'm of the view that it's actually Moses and Elijah. Mm-hmm. And the reasoning is they give their, their calling cards away. Okay. One of them shuts up the heavens so that it cannot rain. That sounds like Elijah to me. Mm-hmm. The other one turns water to blood. That sounds like Moses. That's true, yeah. And they're supernaturally protected, these two witnesses. You can see Moses being supernaturally protected in Numbers 1635 and Elijah being protected in 2 Kings 1, 10 through 14. Actually, Elijah shut up the heavens for three and a half years, Luke 4, 25, mm-hmm. James 5, 17. That's the same length that the 1,260 days that true, these yeah. guys are, are um, shutting up the heavens mm-hmm. and they're raptured to heaven. That kind of reminds me a lot of Elijah, 2 Kings 2, 11. Mm-hmm. Beyond that, as you mentioned before, they both appear on the Mount of Transfiguration. They seem mm-hmm. to make guest appearances mm-hmm. on the earth. Yeah. when the kingdom is eminent because the kingdom was still being offered, you know, mm-hmm. at that point in Matthew's gospel, the ministries of Elijah and Moses were cut short. Um, mm-hmm. Moses was never allowed to enter the promised mm-hmm. land. Elijah was taken to heaven in a chariot. And mm-hmm. so to me, it's very logical that God would allow them to come back to fulfill their ministries. Mm-hmm. And the, New Testament in the New Testament never fulfilled the scriptures concerning Moses and Elijah. John the Baptist was like Elijah, Luke 1 17. He was actually asked, John 1 21, are you Elijah? He said no. So to me, the ministry of Elijah is predicted in the end times, Malachi 4, 5, and 6. And in an indirect way, Moses' ministry is predicted in Jude 9 concerning an argument that satan had with michael concerning the body of moses why would satan contest that unless moses is going to need his body again so i don't know you put all the data together and i i think you got a pretty good case that moses and elijah are these two witnesses oh that's uh, that's pretty fascinating and clear for me i've never really done much exhaustive study on it I was in the Elijah Enoch camp until you drew up the fact that and allowed me to remember Enoch's not Jewish, you know, and then bringing up the aspects of, yeah, clearly I, I do totally believe it's going to be Elijah, but then the arguments for Moses and the ministries being cut short and knew about the different, uh, the similarities between what they done in the old Testament and what's prophesied to be done as well. And so 
Yeah, I think I'm going to throw away the Elijah and Enoch view uh, and really hold to the Moses and Elijah view based on what you were saying. So I appreciate that. There's a lot of clarity and explanation on that. Uh, I know I want to ask you a whole bunch more stuff, and uh, but as far as this interview is concerned, that's going to be really the last of it. I know you're a busy person and you got a lot of stuff going on. Uh, so maybe there'd be another interview in the future. Uh, I'd love to pick your brain about the eternal order aspect as well, and specifically Messianic kingdom timeframe period. But as we close, do you have any final comments? How can they find out about you, your ministries? We'll have links in the descriptions, but is there any final thoughts or places you'd like to direct people to? Yeah, if they're interested in, you know, interpreting the Bible, kind of like how I've tried to role model, I would encourage people to consider Chafer Seminary for education. Mm -hmm. In fact, uh, this interview has gone so well concerning the content of questions that you're asking. I'd like to actually put this on our promotional, one of our promotional emails, mm -hmm. you know, once the link becomes available, if that's okay with you. Of course. Uh, but it's people can find out about our school at www.chafer.edu. Um, if you want to follow my personal ministry, an easy way to do it is just go to Andy Woods, mm -hmm. put an S on the end there, andywoodsministries.org. Okay. We have a new, a new app that's out. People can get that in the app store. And that's just a very easy way to keep track of our verse by verse teaching. And oh, okay. we do, we do a, we do a podcast, um, every uh, week really on current events. Okay. So this week I'm interviewing, um, uh, uh, Johnny Teague, who's running for the house of representatives mm -hmm. out in our area. We do, um, prophetic content, kind of like some of the stuff we talked about here. Yeah. Um, so andywoodsministries.org, uh, the app is available. Just put Andy Woods into the, the app store and you should have an opportunity to get that. We okay. post our, probably our most popular platform is YouTube. Just put my name into your YouTube search engine and you'll yeah. see all of our verse by verse teachings and that kind of thing. If you're into podcasts, just put Dr. Woods or, mm -hmm. Andy Woods, Pastor's Point of View, into your wherever you get your podcasts, yeah. Apple or whatever, and my name, ours should come right up, so you can get our stuff in podcast form. Mm -hmm. um, our church, Sugarland Bible Church, www.slbc, Sugarland Bible Church, www.slbc.org, has archived all of our stuff. Okay. So you can get it in video audio, uh, transcript format, mm -hmm. the PowerPoints are available. And if they go to sermons and you'll see all the different categories. Mm -hmm. So if you're interested in our Thessalonian study, yeah. mm -hmm. John study, and some of the studies done by our associate pastors on dispensationalism and mm -hmm. Titus, and that's all available there. So that's an easy way to keep track of us. So slbc.org, andywoodsministries.org, chafer.edu, YouTube, and Apple in terms of podcast format or videocast format. Mm -hmm. um, I, I mean, I mean, if you want to find me, you know, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not hiding. <laughs> it seems like you're everywhere. <laughs> 
I was actually downloading, working on downloading your app. Okay, let, let us know right now. Yeah, let us know how it goes if there's problems because that's that's pretty new. Definitely, I, I'm excited to see what all ha the app has uh, inside of it and reference material. Like you said, if there's passages, stuff like that that helps understand and exegete it, it's gonna be a great tool. Well, it's a work in progress. Yeah. Right. Right now, we're gradually getting posted our pastor's point of view mm -hmm. broadcast, which is our most popular thing that we do. Mm -hmm. But you know, be just be patient with it because eventually we're going to get everything on there. Well, okay. Going. And we're going to have links in the description of this video with all that stuff, and so, and then we're going to get some of your books out there in the descriptions as well. And so, Dr. Woods, again, I appreciate the time that you shared with us uh, today. And like I said, hopefully looking forward to future interview, Messianic Kingdom, Eternal Order stuff. And yes, if you would like to have any part of this video, uh, I could send you either the raw file or I could just send you the link that it's on the YouTube and you guys can pull it however you'd like to do it. And we'll discuss different ways and by all means, uh, I would love to do that. So uh, for everybody still watching, uh, check him out, Dr. Andy Woods. And uh, until next time, God bless.